All right, so we are drawing our series through the book of Colossians to a close. The title for the series has been Christ Over All, which is a very fitting title for the book of Colossians. So Christ is over all. He is King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. And he is the one who should rule over all of our lives, every nook and cranny. So the book of Colossians just reveals Jesus Christ for who he is in all of his preeminent, exalted glory. So if you look back in chapter 1, there's this beautiful uh, song to Christ, a poem to Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. Verse 15, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible or invisible. All things created through him and for him. He's also the head of the body. So he is the ruler of creation, and he's also the ruler of the church. He's the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Then down in Colossians 2, 9, it says, In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you, if you're in Christ... You have been filled in Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. And then Paul is saying, because those things are true, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, who is preeminent over all, so walk in him, so that he is over all of our lives, every aspect. That's Paul's goal. He wants to present the Colossians and us mature in Christ, where we know what it looks like to live as a Christian in every nook and cranny of life. That's why he prays in chapter one that we would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. We know how to please him in every aspect of life. So Christ is over all. The question then is, is Christ over all in my life, in your life, in every area? That's what Paul's praying for. That's what he's laboring for. So Bethel family, let's pursue this. Let's welcome Christ's lordship, his preeminence over all of life. In previous weeks, we saw how Christ is to be over our thoughts and our desires and our relationships and our work and our past, and our present, and our future. So you know that with the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray that, we are actually welcoming Jesus' kingship, his lordship over every aspect of life. Your kingdom come. You are the king. Help me, Lord, not to stiff arm you, to resist your rule, but to welcome it. And not bow the knee to any other so-called masters. No other idols. So, we are saying, as we say amen to the book of Colossians, your kingdom come. You are Lord over all. Be Lord over all of me. So, that's the prayer. And speaking of prayer, that's where our passage starts. So, we're going to look at Colossians 4. Verses 2 to the end of the chapter, which is the end of the book, 2 to 18. 
So let's look first at point number one, devote yourselves to prayer, beginning verses two to four. So Paul writes, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So this, this language of continuing steadfastly in prayer, um, elsewhere it gets translated as devote yourselves to prayer. So it implies persistence, obviously. So that language is used in the book of Acts of the early church. So in Acts 1.14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Or Acts 2.42, I think probably a verse most of us are familiar with. The early church is devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And then Romans 12.12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. It's the same word. Be devoted to prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer. So what words describe your life of prayer? Would it be devotion? Would it be persistence? Is that what would mark our church, characterize us as a church family? Is that a good word to describe your community group? So I'll give a shameless plug for our Wednesday prayer meeting. Um, If you're not on the mailing list, you can just email Gail in the office and she can give you the link. We're meeting virtually at this point. Um, And you can join us because we want to grow in our dependence on God and be steadfast in our prayer. So this devotion to prayer is to be characterized by watchfulness and vigilance. So we are to stay alert so we don't live in spiritual peacetime. This is not the time to, you know, just get lulled to sleep. We need to be vigilant and awake and alert. This is the same language that Jesus used when he spoke to his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. So I think we probably know it, that prayer is driven by need. If we're not aware of our need, we're not going to be praying much. If we get lulled to sleep, there's no threat, no battle, no need, we're not aware of our need and the needs around us, we will stop praying. So we need to be clued in, not forgetting our need. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So we are needy. We need to remember that and continue steadfastly in prayer. So this devoted prayer Paul calls us to is also to be characterized by thanksgiving, which is a theme that's been repeated throughout the book. And, you know, life is hard, and it's really easy to go through hard stuff and hear the call to be thankful. And we can, we can maybe give way to a little bit of cynicism. Uh, we can almost be spiritual pessimists a little bit, you know, This call to dogged thanksgiving can feel like it's a little too out of touch with the difficulties of life. Or we can cultivate a daily habit of recognizing, Lord, help me see your goodness and mercy. To realize, to remember that as a Christian, I am always doing better than I deserve. And God is at work even in the hardest of circumstances. So he has been merciful and gracious and loving. We need to rehearse those things and not forget them, like Psalm 103. 
Forget not all his benefits. Remember what he's done and rehearse it. He is being merciful and gracious and loving. Sometimes we just need eyes to see it. He has promised to keep us all the way to the end. And he's working all things together for good. So there is all kinds of reason, reasons to be thankful no matter how hard things get in our life. I remember one time we were back in Chicago doing college ministry and we had a volunteer staff of um, a number of folks and we met monthly and the church was going through a pretty rough patch and uh, a lot of people were discouraged and there was actually, I think, negativity was starting to get some traction, some inertia. And I, I remember getting discouraged myself and we met on a Friday night for our staff meeting and we stopped and just said, listen, how has God worked in our lives while we've been at this church? Let's just stop and think and rehearse some of the ways in which he's been gracious and he's blessed us. And it was like, started slow and then it started to just boom, 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 left, right. And all of a sudden the heaviness just lifted and we all left the house that night so encouraged because our eyes, we got off of the negative stuff and we were focusing on all the good that God had done. So I need to do that more often. I imagine we all do. That doesn't mean you sweep, you know, stuff that needs to get addressed under the rug. It just means that we can just really incline to focus on the bad things rather than all that God has done and is doing and is promising to do for us as his children. So before we move on to verse 3, I think it's worth noting the juxtaposition, two things laid side by side, of vigilance and thanksgiving. So not vigilance without thanksgiving. Otherwise, we might think that, you know, like it all depends on us. You know, constant vigilance. You know, you've got to be so focused. We can start to get fretful and nervous. So vigilance, yes, but nail-biting, no. And then not thanksgiving without vigilance, or we might think, you know, the battle's won. We just need to kind of enjoy the fruit of victory, and we're just, you know, on spiritual vacation floating down the lazy river of life. So thankfulness, yes, but putting down our weapons, no. So maybe each of us is inclined to lean in one way or the other, and what we might need to do is labor at cultivating the side that we're weaker on. So we're supposed to continue steadfastly in prayer. What are we supposed to be praying for? Well, two things here in verses 2 to 6, our walk and our mission. There's two main commands. So first, our walk. And I put that in the plural because it's not just that we're praying personally for my walk with Jesus, but our walk as a church. So in recent weeks, we looked at the rest of chapter 3, and Paul is saying, for instance, look at um, Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, loving one another, putting on love. So how in the world are we going to live this out? Chapter 3 is pretty sober 
standard. We fall short of those things all the time. Christ over all, like every nook and cranny of life, how in the world are we going to live that out? Well, only by God's grace, only by his strength. So let's pray. So we pray for our walk. And then it gets more specific in verse 3. Paul is asking for prayer for the mission. So he says, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So what does Paul ask the Colossians to pray for? That the infection, you know, in his back from his most recent beating would be healed and the fevers would go away? No. Not that that's a bad thing to pray about or to ask somebody to pray about. That he would get out of prison? Just pray that I can get out of here. No. He says, pray that God will open up more doors for the word and that I will preach clearly. So maybe he's implying that, you know, the door would be open further if I could get out of this prison. But you know from the book of Philippians that Paul saw time in prison as prison ministry. (laughs) And he just wants open doors for the gospel. So Paul is actually more bound by his obligation to preach the gospel than he is bound by chains in prison. And as David Garland points out, I love this, Paul's imprisonment may have contributed more to the advance of the gospel than his freedom. So from Philippians, again, the prison epistles, um, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, we know that the gospel spread all through the Praetorian Guard. And also he wrote these letters that we're still reading and studying today. So massive impact. Garland then quotes um, something that a, a man named Emilio de Carvalho, a Methodist bishop from Angola, which is southern African country, he said once in an interview, you know, Angola, Angolan Christians uh, suffered under government oppression, and he said that that caused the church to grow stronger. So listen to this quote. The government does what it needs to do. The church does what it needs to do. If we go to jail for being the church, we go to jail. Jail is a wonderful place for Christian evangelism. Our church made some of its most dramatic gains during the revolution when so many of us were in jail. In jail, you have everyone there in one place. You have time to preach and teach. Sure, 20,000 of our Methodist pastors were killed during the revolution, but we came out of jail a much larger and stronger church. got to love people like that. It's sobering, but see that perspective, the same perspective that the Apostle Paul had. So just note the progression here. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Pray for me for the sake of the mission. So faithful witness, evangelism, both for you and I, as well as for people we support, you know, the Paul's of the world, faithful witness starts on our knees. So while we're on the topic of prayer, we're going to jump down to verses 12 and 13 because Epaphras, one of the Colossians that was working with Paul, he's actually the one who probably planted the church. They first heard the gospel from this guy, 
He is an example of what this devotion to prayer, this continuing steadfastly in prayer, what it looks like. And we need examples to follow. So look down at chapter 4, verses 12 to 13. So Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So this guy is following in the footsteps of Jesus and in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul. Remember in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul talked about his anxiety for all the churches. They were so much on his heart that he was constantly concerned about them. Well, Epaphras is constantly concerned about the Colossian believers, and so he's wrestling and struggling on his knees so that they will be stable and steadfast, mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So we need examples like this. This word for struggling is the word, the the Greek word that we get our English word agony or agonize from. In fact, in in 1 Timothy 6, 12, Paul says, fight the good fight of the faith, right? It's agonize the good agony, literally. So Epaphras is an example to the Colossians of this kind of vigilant, watchful, continual prayer. And he's an example to us. So do you have some examples like that in your life? I know for me, a guy named Coach Rex, um, old football coach, faithful prayer warrior back in Chicago, was such an example to me. Chuck Barmore, Julie, your dear husband that we miss, who went home to be with the Lord, faithful prayer warrior here. Marion Howe, 96 years old, and she's still on the, you know, calling in for our Wednesday night prayer meeting. I could name many more, but why is it that oftentimes it's the older saints who are the prayer warriors? Maybe it's because they've lived long enough to know, apart from Jesus, we really can do nothing. (laughs) But may we become a church filled with prayer warriors as we see this Christ over all life that we're called to here following Jesus, it's, it's like help. <laughs> so the more we want Christ to be over all, we are gonna be on our knees saying, Lord, help me. I want to live a life worthy of the calling that I've received. I want Jesus to see, I want people to see Jesus in me and through me and in us and through us. So may God grow us in our dependence on him in prayer. So two main commands in four, two to six, devote yourselves to prayer and walk wisely. So let's look, point number two, at walk wisely toward outsiders, verses five and six. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So three descriptions of what it means to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, those who are not Christians. So the first is making the best use of the time or redeeming the time. Maybe you've heard it translated that way as well. So our responsibility, our loving obligation is to always have the outsiders, the people outside of Christ, which means they're outside of hope, outside of forgiveness, outside of heaven 
They should not be out of sight, out of mind. These people that God has in our lives, these neighbors that don't know Jesus, they should be on our minds and in our hearts. And whenever an opportunity presents itself, we would want to buy up that opportunity and take advantage of it. So, you know any bargain hunters in your life? Maybe you are one. You know, always looking for a deal. And whenever you see it, or whenever they see it, they just jump on it, buy up that opportunity. Well, what if we were that way with opportunities for the gospel? In fact, Lord, make that little word picture stick. (laughs) The next time the inner bargain hunter just gets activated in you or in somebody close to you, think of this. Lord, help me be oriented that way toward buying up opportunities, making the most of every opportunity for the sake of the gospel. So our walking in wisdom should be characterized by making the best use of the time. The second description is that we should be both gracious and salty. So not an either or, but a both and. So our our speech toward those who don't know Jesus yet should be gracious and salty. So salty, just for what it's worth, in our day might mean something a little bit different, you know? (laughs) Like, she's kind of salty, or he's a little salty. So kind of means coarse or aggressive or sometimes sarcastic or whatever. Paul means witty or clever or winsome. So our speech is to be both tactful and bold, zealous, and respectful. So our speech should be gracious and grace-filled. You know, sometimes when we speak to people about faith issues, it it becomes like an argument. And if we just try to win an argument, we might be speaking the truth, but we're not speaking it in love and with grace. So we should not be trying to jam the truth down people's throats. But that doesn't mean that our speech should be so nice that it never provokes thought or challenges assumptions. So our speech should be salty. It should be lively and thought-provoking. So what's the best way to do that? Well, not necessarily going nuts on YouTube watching apologetics videos, although that can be helpful. I think one of the most effective ways for our speech to be winsome and vital is to feed on Christ every day and to taste and see that the Lord is good so that we have when when we have the opportunity to speak of him it's not this canned formulaic dull thing We're like the aroma of Christ and some people are going to like smell that and their appetite is going to be whetted to know Christ. So Dick Lucas has a, a wise comment here. He says, the new convert typically is urgent but can lack tact and discretion. The older Christian has the wisdom of experience but often lacks boldness and importunity, persistence. You see that happen so often? Maybe you've seen it in your own life. Maybe you used to be more zealous and now not so much. Don't you want it to be both and? (laughs) 
which leads us to our knees, right? Once again, to pray, because prayer is essential to effective witness. So let's pursue zeal with knowledge, substance and passion, light and heat. So we need to walk toward outsiders with wisdom, making the most of every opportunity, speaking with salty and gracious speech. So you know how good it is when somebody's got some salty speech when it comes to speaking the truths about Christ and the Christian faith, right? So you've listened to maybe Ravi Zacharias, you know what I mean. Or I recommended this book by Rebecca McLaughlin. Um, Highly recommended, great uh, apologetic book, Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. So clear, so winsome, uh, just really, really good. You can also look up videos where she um, is speaking as well. So we might get intimidated. We might think, you know, "Ah, I could never be Ravi Zacharias. Well, of course not. But we're not called to be the next Rebecca McLaughlin or Ravi Zacharias. We're called to be grounded and ready, prepared for the opportunities that do come. So do you see that phrase, the last phrase in verse 6? So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Each person, like, again, that could be overwhelming. Well, that's why we pray. God can help us. He can help us be gracious and salty in our speech. But we've got to start somewhere. You're not called to be an apologetic genius, but instead to just make the most of every opportunity. So if somebody asked you today, you know, social distance with your neighbor in the yard, why are you a Christian? Would you be ready to answer? If somebody asked you why Christianity is better than other religions, what would you say? If someone at work or somebody's, you know, somebody that you meet at the grocery store or wherever, and maybe that doesn't happen anymore because we're behind our masks and whatever, but let's say you meet a neighbor and you find out they've been burned in the church and they start talking about the hypocrisy in the church. Do you know how to listen well and then speak in both a gracious and salty way? If someone said that they can't believe in a loving and all-powerful God because of all the suffering and evil all around us, do you know how to answer that person? In a wise and winsome way? So we don't need to just memorize canned, formulaic answers. We need to walk with Jesus and learn his word and understand his mind and love people and listen to them and seek to speak the truth to where they are in clear and gracious ways. So what is your posture? What's my posture towards outsiders? Are we praying for the people around us, seeking, seeking opportunities to love them and share with them? Do you feel the burden for the souls that are entrusted to you because of your relational sphere? Or is evangelism just like this unwanted burden of guilt? What if we prayed, what if our church family prayed for open doors for the word every day until the end of the year? I set an alarm this morning. It's going to go off at 9 a.m. 
and I'm going to pray for opportunities every day till the end of the year. So anybody want to join me? Feel free. Do you think maybe the Lord might actually answer that prayer even in COVID world? Are you willing to pray that prayer? Are you afraid of praying that prayer? If you're afraid of praying that prayer, don't think too lightly of God's ability to help you with gracious, salty speech and the ability to answer each person. You don't have to have all the answers. Be honest. That's a great question. I don't know. Let me go think about it. Let me go, you know, study that a little bit and come back to you. So an example of this that I thought of, because um, this is such an encouraging story to me, and this guy has been encouraging to me uh, over the years, just remembering his example. So a guy named Jerry Root teaches at Wheaton College. That's where Beth and I went. It's where Hannah goes um, to college. And once he was asked many years ago by a friend of his who was a chaplain at one of the colleges at Oxford to preach at an evening service, okay? And then he was asked to eat at the high table with the faculty afterwards, okay? So high table at Oxford's like a really big deal. You know, this huge space, rich wood paneling, you know, lots like pretentious with a capital P, okay? There's all kinds of history there, obviously, right? So everybody eats in their academic gowns and the meal begins with a Latin prayer and so here's how Jerry Root tells the story. The chaplain introduced me to the faculty as the one who just finished speaking at the even song service. After the Latin prayer, a woman who sat across from me, a professor of history, immediately asked me, so Jerry, why are you a Christian? I thought she was asking because she wanted to know and was inquiring for personal reasons. After the meal, someone at the table who knew the woman told me that he thought she was asking because she wanted to make of me the entertainment for that night's dinner. I responded to her inquiry without any kind of philosophical or theological defense of Christian doctrine. I simply spoke out of my own deep sense of need for Christ. I responded, I'm a Christian because I'm aware of my failures and shortcomings and the kinds of things the Bible calls sin in my life. It's out of the deep recognition that things are broken and need fixing that have driven me to God for forgiveness. Also, it's out of a deep longing to be loved with a love that does not shy away due to my failures that I have sought this in Christ. I have found the love and forgiveness of God that speaks to my deepest need, and I found the gospel in that regard compelling. My guess is that wasn't the kind of answer the historian was expecting because she was clearly taken back by what I said. Looking back at it now, I can't help but wonder if she was expecting some rational argument that she could then spend the rest of the meal trying to unravel and pick apart. She replied, well, I can appreciate what you're saying, but that's just not my issue. Like, failure. <laughs> you know, because he spoke of his need. This was a surprising answer to hear, for it was my... For it is my belief that anyone who has honestly looked at his or her life must be aware of its many shortcomings and deficiencies. I felt like this woman was either bluffing or she was not being honest with herself, let alone me or the faculty sitting at the table. I said in response, I think I understand what you're saying here. In fact, I became a Christian in my first year in college and I didn't become perfect overnight. It took two or three weeks for that to happen. As soon as I said this, the whole table broke up in a roar of laughter. When things settled down again, I looked at the woman and said, your laughter 
betrays you. She asked, what do you mean? I answered, you and I just met, so you couldn't possibly know specifics in my life that made my statement about achieving perfection nothing but nonsense. So your laughter meant that either your read of history or your read of your own struggles in life revealed to you the nonsense of that statement. She responded with a note of humility and honesty. You got me. I inquired, so, so how many people would have just like, and then, you know, so what's, who's that on the wall? Like he was ready and he said, then knowing of your own struggles in life and the incongruities between what you know you should be and how you actually live, what gets you by when you make an honest assessment of your life? She answered, I have faith in humanity. I responded, I'm eager for anything that will help me grow and get better. May I ask you a couple of questions about your faith in humanity? She said, yes. It's gracious. I asked, have you ever been wounded by another human being before? She answered, of course. Then I asked, have you ever wounded another human being before? Her answer was more subdued as she, as she said, I suppose so. It was clear she was a little softer on herself than she seemed to be towards those who had wounded her. Then I asked, how does this faith in humanity work when we live in a world where we have been wounded and we have wounded others? It was at that moment that one of the other fellows at the table asked, how does it work for Christians? And we spent the rest of the evening at that high table talking about the love of God and the grace of God. So, Jerry Root is a gifted evangelist, so I think we could all feel like we're not ready <laughs> compared to him. But he was ready not with a bunch of impressive philosophical and apologetic grenades to launch, you know, at that, those Oxford intellectuals. He came with a humble heart in tune with his need for Christ and full of love for Christ because of how Christ had first loved him. So he was ready. Let's pray and seek to be ready ourselves. So lastly, oh my goodness, <laughs> together, verses 7 to 18. So this is a bunch of greetings, right? And we'd probably be tempted to kind of blow past this, but there's so much beauty in this section, so much instruction. So there's wonderful diverse unity where you have Jews and Gentiles as part of Paul's, you know, band of brothers and sisters ministering the gospel. Luke is this beloved and well-educated physician. And then there's Onesimus, a runaway slave, but now brother in Christ. You can read more about him in Philemon. So who is this guy? He's not runaway slave Philemon. He is this brother. Look at the identification. So, oh, having trouble seeing it. Where is it? <laughs> um, our faithful and beloved brother. He has a new identity in Christ. It's beautiful. So there's this diverse unity here. We're not going to turn over every rock. I just want to make one final point by digging a little bit into the story behind verse 10. Okay, so the gospel and failure final point here. I think we find some profound things. So why is this significant? What Paul says about Mark. 
the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. So earlier on, Mark had actually bailed on Paul and Barnabas in ministry. Things got heated up and he bailed. So this is John Mark, okay? He had two names. So in Acts 13, 13, it says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, that's John Mark, John Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem. So as a result of this, Paul and Barnabas actually had a sharp disagreement and they parted ways because Barnabas wanted to bring Mark along. And Paul says, nope, he bailed, he might do it again, I'm not taking him. And the disagreement was so sharp that they parted ways over it. And Paul took Silas, and Barnabas took John Mark. So who was right and wrong? We don't know. Maybe Barnabas was too quick to give John Mark the benefit of the doubt. I mean, he is his cousin, by the way. We see that in Colossians 4.10. Maybe Paul was right, wrong, who knows? The point is, here's two godly men who looked at the same data, came to different conclusions, and, you know, sometimes we end up agreeing to disagree. These are spirit-filled, spirit-led men, and they disagreed. But the point I want to make is that this wasn't the end for John Mark. Paul is commending him to the Colossians. If he comes, welcome him. In Paul's final letter, 2 Timothy, he says in verse 11 of chapter 4, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. So the early church is not filled with supermen and superwomen. Genuine faith and the gift of the Spirit is not a fail-safe against failure. John Mark fled before the cross. You can look at Mark 14, 51 to 52. He fled after the cross, Acts 13, 13. And he was, in the end, the real deal and useful in ministry. Barnabas was a good man, good man, full of faith in the Spirit of God. He was bold. He took all these loving steps of faith, and he succumbed to fear of man hypocrisy. He shrunk back. Galatians 2, you can look at it later. Peter denied Christ before the cross, and he denied the gospel by his actions after the cross in Galatians 2. So, two quotes to finish here. First by David Garland. Failure happens, but failure need not be final. Those who have triumphed over their failures or in spite of their failures recognize that they may have had a failure, perhaps many, but they were not failures. You might need to hear that. I know I need to hear that. So C.S. Lewis to close said this, no amount of falls will really undo us if we keep picking ourselves up each time by grace. We shall, of course, be very muddy and tattered children by the time we reach home. But the bathrooms are all ready, the towels put out, and the clean clothes in the airing covered. The only fatal thing is to lose one's temper and give up. It is when we notice the dirt that God is most present to us. It is the very sign of his presence. Let's pray. God, 
we came into relationship with you by your undeserved and amazing grace poured out on us through Christ. And so as we received Christ Jesus the Lord, help us to walk in him by his grace on our knees and making the most of every opportunity so that we can walk in a manner worthy of you, pleasing you in every respect, even when we fall, coming back to you for grace and cleansing and fresh strength to follow faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen.